They also, you know, that's at least two. And if they're telling you one. Good morning, everyone. Today is Sunday, May 26th, 2019. And today we are studying Bethel, New Testament, number nine, Christ the Lord. Let's open with prayer. Dear Heavenly Father and God, I thank you so very much for this tremendous privilege you've given us of studying your revealed word. Your revealed word is not exhaustive and complete, but it is more than adequate for our belief in you and giving us an idea of your character, personality, and love for us. Please open our minds and our hearts today for the truth and wisdom you have for us. In your Son, Jesus Christ's name, we pray these things. Amen. Okay, so today's lesson, which is uh, called Christ the Lord, is actually a description of the book of Acts. Now, the book of Acts, uh, I'm actually leading uh, the strugglers in the book of Acts, and it will take us four years to get through it. Today, uh, This year is the second year. We're just finishing the second year. It'll take us two more years to get through it. So we're going to do it today in 45 minutes. <laughs> So we're going to be hitting just the mountaintops, obviously, just the very tippy tops of the mountains. But what I hope to give you is at least an understanding of the general theme of Acts and the monumental importance of Acts. If you've lasted this long in this course, then it is important to you to understand how Jesus Christ is relevant and active in your life. And how it is you can get closer to Jesus Christ, who has made God known. God chose the second person in the Godhead to occupy the body of a man named Jesus of Nazareth to come down and reveal what he is like. And then he left something with us. He left us with the Holy Spirit, which we talked about quite a bit last time, didn't we? Remember we talked about the works of the Holy Spirit? Well, let's take a look at a broad brush of what the book of Acts is all about. The book of Acts is basically a bridge from the Gospels, the four Gospels, to the rest of the New Testament. So it is monumentally important. Uh, Something you already may know, it is actually the second in a two-part work by the physician Luke, who wrote to his patron a man, a Gentile named Theophilus. And Theophilus was a Christian, but he had an incomplete or somewhat in some ways erroneous understanding of the gospel of Jesus. And so he explained it. The purpose of his writing the book of Luke was to explain that. Then what he did, the second volume of his work, two-part work, was the book of Acts. So the book of Acts is actually an extension of the Gospels. That's exactly how it should be looked at. So in my opinion, it is something of a five-Gospel situation. Now, the reason we would, you know, you're accurate in calling it a four-Gospels is because in the book of Acts, the apostles are going out and they're spreading the word of the Gospels, which, of course, are the four. But... We also spread the word of what happened when they did that. And so we are witnesses, or or we we preach, I should say, uh, and we give the message. It's not complete without saying, hey, this is what happened. When these apostles went out and spread the word to people throughout the world, this is what happened. And so it really is part of the whole whole word. 
It is a bridge from Christ to Christianity. How did it actually become Christianity? The book of Acts tells us. And it's a bridge from Jesus Christ to the body of Christ, which is the church. Over and over again, we're going to see in different letters uh, that the church is referred to as the body of Christ. So the church is designed to be the loving heart and the helping hands and the traveling throughout the world, the feet of Christ. And in the book of Acts, we're going to see the dramatic breakdown of walls of separation. Do you remember in the Old Testament, was there a concept of separation that had a legitimate purpose at one time? Yes, because as God is building this powerful instrument for his purpose to let the world know that he exists and what he's like and how, what our relationship to him should be like, um, he had to allow this, this uh, instrument of his called Israel to grow up pure and to grow up to where they were not influenced by any other gods and the cultures that would work against the way he was educating, you might say, over centuries, uh, his instrument, Israel. And so separation was a very important and legitimate part of their upbringing. What was one of the errors of the Jews as they came along is the whole idea of law. The law is took place of a legitimate, real relationship with God. And so in many ways, for a lot of people, following the law was a lot easier than doing what you needed to do to have a good relationship with God. It's kind of like sometimes I think, you know, writing a check to a charity is sometimes easier than actually giving your time where you actually have to have a relationship with some people. Uh, I think that's the way, kind of the way it was with the law. It was just easier to follow that law. Plus, it was a very convenient tool for the people in charge to lord it, lord it over and control the people that they were supposed to be shepherding. The book of Acts breaks down that separation between the Jews and the Gentiles. And one of the big surprises to the Jews, even the Jewish Christians, well, in particular the Jewish Christians, the big surprise was the Gentiles are saved too? Wow, we didn't expect that. And so that's what the book of Acts is all about there. It is an account of the Holy Spirit in action in real people. And it is absolutely fantastic. We're going to see that most strongly in Peter. We're going to see a man who was full of puffed up bravado. I'll follow you anywhere, Jesus. I'll go to hell with you. And yet he denied Jesus because a little maid said, I think you're a Galilean, you're a disciple of his. And he just buckled under that. So he proved he didn't have nearly the courage that he said he did. He was turned from that kind of a wimp into a truly courageous and eloquent person. Um, the book of Acts is really divided into two semi-accounts or biographies of two very, very strong evangelists. Peter in Jerusalem and Judea, and Paul in Asia Minor, which is today Turkey, and Eastern Europe. 
And we're going to see how Jesus' promises and warnings play out in the book of Acts. The promises such as you're going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit's going to equip you to do your assignment. And don't worry when you are brought before kings and you've been beaten and you normally would be scared to death. Don't worry. The Holy Spirit will speak through you. Don't worry about what you're going to say or how you're supposed to say it. Two, the warnings where you will be persecuted. This is not like, ah, oh, you might be persecuted. If you preach the gospel, you will be persecuted. So what I'm going to do is uh, lace up your tennis shoes, your running shoes, because we're going to go through the book of Acts. And uh, I've got nine pages here that I'm going to try to go through in about 45 minutes. Okay? So in the beginning... Jesus Christ and his, he meets his disciples after his resurrection. He meets with his disciples for 40 days. And he is, what the scripture tells us in the first chapter of Acts, verses 1 through 8, it tells us that he taught them or spoke to them is what it says. He spoke to them about the kingdom of God. And I've often wondered, well, what did he really talk about? You know, what was it that he talked about? Well, it's told to us in Luke in Luke 24, 44 through 49, uh, Luke has a little bit of an overlap in the end of Luke and the beginning of Acts. And it's so good, I want to read it to you. And so uh, I'm going to take a look here at Luke chapter 24, 44 through 49. Now this again is also after his resurrection. And what I read here is... Jesus said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. Now, the law of Moses is the first five books of the Bible. The Psalms are just what they say. And the prophets are basically the rest of the Bible. Then Jesus opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. That's what Jesus did for those 40 days. He opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. And in particular, this is what is written, he said, the Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and uh, repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in, the, in his name and all the nations beginning in Jerusalem. You are witnesses to these things. I am going to send you what my father has promised but stay in the city that is Jerusalem until you have been clothed with power from on high. Now that word witnesses, that word witnesses in Greek is martus. That's the name for witness. And that's where we get the name martyr. And so the martyrs were witnesses, even in their death, and particularly in their death, really. So that is what Jesus taught them. He opened their minds to the scriptures and reminded them of everything that was said about him there. And uh, he promised here the Holy Spirit was going to come to them and reassure them and equip them. Now, then we have basically an outline of the entire book of Acts. If someone says to you, well, what is the book of Acts about anyway? You could tell them, well, it gives its own outline. And its outline is given in chapter 1, verses 4 through 5 and, and 8. So here's what 4 through 5 says. Um, on one occasion, while he was eating with them, Jesus gave them this command. Uh, 
Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father has promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And that's a perfect outline of the book of Acts. First part takes takes part in Jerusalem, the first many chapters through chapter uh, 8 is all in Jerusalem. And then we see things happening in outside of Judea and up in Syria. And then Paul goes to the uttermost of the known world at that time. So, a very, very handy thing for that, uh, for that outline to be given. Now, what happens then in the upper room with 120 disciples there, and they're all kind of huddled in fear, Judas has hung himself, and he is gone now. He was one of the 12, so they need to choose a new one. So they choose a man named Mattathias. It's very interesting to see how they choose him. Then we have an account of the Holy Spirit given. The Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost. Pentecost means 50, and it's 50 days after the uh, Passover. And so at Pentecost, that's one of the major feasts of the year, and so the place is packed. Jerusalem is packed with pilgrims and for other people coming to just view what's going on. These don't even have to be Jews. It's kind of like going to New Orleans for Mardi Gras. And so they're all there because there's a lot of pageant and there's a lot of pomp and ceremony, and that's just a wonderful time. Well, while these 120 are up there after they have... uh, made Mattathias the disciple, uh, the, the twith, fifth apostle, uh, probably the twelfth apostle. And remember, apostle just means someone who's sent. So these are the people that Jesus sent. And one of the qualifications or the series of qualifications necessary for an apostle is they have to have been with Jesus the entire time during his ministry, and they have to have witnessed his resurrection. And so apparently Mattathias is one of many who were the disciples who did that. A disciple is just a student. We're disciples. But apostle is someone very, very special. We don't have any apostles today. Because they could only exist at the time of Jesus. So while they're all praying, while these 120 are all praying in the upper room of John Mark's mother's house, all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit becomes revealed and manifest. And... Scripture does the best it can to describe the best it can to describe the indescribable. It's a it's a violent wind. It's like tongues of fire hanging over everyone's head. And people started talking in languages they didn't formally know. And they're actually giving the gospel in these foreign languages that were formerly unfamiliar to them. And then God-fearing Jews from every nation who had come to Jerusalem for Pentecost, they are evangelized by these apostles in their own languages, which are many, many different languages. And so it's, you have this, this kind of reverse Tower of Babel where God confused all the people who were uh, trying to become like gods themselves or become equal to God. 
He confused them all by making their languages unknown to each other. And so they could not understand each other. Uh, But here it's just the opposite. These disciples, these apostles, are speaking in languages that they could actually connect and communicate with people that they couldn't before. Okay, so then we have a a picture of the primitive church. Primitive just means first, the early church in Jerusalem. And we get Peter's speech to the Jewish mob at Pentecost. And this is the first major speech we get of Peter. We have three major speeches by Peter. Uh, Luke has some fantastic speeches in the book of Acts. And of course, there are summaries of the actual speeches. The actual speeches probably lasted quite a while. Um, Paul, in particular, was known for speaking for hours. In fact, he spoke so long at one place, a young man named Eutychus was sitting on the, door, on the windowsill and fell asleep and fell down and died. Paul went down and brought him back to life, though. But it was about midnight when that happened. So Paul could just really talk a lot. So we have just summaries of what they spoke about. But anyway, Peter gives his first speech in chapter 2, verses 14 through 39. It's a fantastic speech. And basically, it follows a very similar pattern to his other two speeches. And he's essentially saying, you know that Jesus that you killed? He was the Messiah. And you killed him. And what you see all around you here, he said, regarding all this uh, these people speaking in foreign tongues, and you're calling them drunk. That's what the religious leaders were trying to discredit uh, what was going on. And they said, oh, these people are just drunk. They've been drinking wine early in the morning. And one of the first things Peter says in his speech is, no, no, it's only nine in the morning, and we don't drink anyway. Not to drunkenness anyway. No, no. What you hear is you hear the work of the Holy Spirit that was given to us by Jesus, who is the Messiah sent by God. You killed him. And many, many people said, my gosh, I can't believe we did that. What do we do? And Peter said, repent of your sins and be baptized, and you'll be filled with the Holy Spirit also. And so many, many people became Christians at that time. They, we were told that there was great spiritual sorrow, grief, repentance, and conversion. And on that day, the church grew by 3,000 people in that one day. What's the nature and description of the early church? There was lots of education that went on. And just as Jesus uh, opened the minds of the apostles to uh, the scriptures so they could really understand what it said, particularly about him uh, as part of God's plan, they then taught uh, other people who joined the church. So in the early church, education was a very large part about that. There was devotion to the apostles' teaching. There was fellowship. There was joy and communion. There was prayer, worship, praise. There was enormous growth. There was a lot of sharing. You could call it practically a socialistic community because anybody who had excess possessions, they shared it within that community so nobody went without. There was happiness and there was sincerity. Then we see a a picture of uh, Peter going to the temple one day and there's a beggar, someone who's been uh, uh, crippled from birth, and he's begging. And uh, he's looking at Peter and, you know, begging for it. And uh, Peter says, uh, do you want to be healed? He says, yes, I want to be healed. And he said, well, 
I don't have money to give you, but I will give you this. And then with that, he says, stand in the name of Jesus Christ, stand. And the man stands. Now, of course, that completely turned his whole life upside down because now he's not going to have friends and family bring him to the temple every day. They're going to say, hey, you can do that on your own now. And he's got to get a real job. That's going to be a, maybe a problem. But you know what? That's what God does so often. He does a miracle, and then he says, I gave you a mind, I gave you reason, I gave you, uh, hopefully you've developed good judgment, you need to use it now. God does that over and over again. And and then Peter gives a speech to the crowd who are sitting there agape that he did this with his cripple. And again, it's very similar, very similar uh, speech to the first one. Then there was persecution for preaching the gospel. The religious leaders, the Sanhedrin in particular, which is the Jewish Supreme Court, and back then keep in mind that there was no separation of church and state. The state was religion. And so whoever was head of the uh, religious organization of the temple, ran the temple, they also ran the government. So back then they said, you can't be preaching this Jesus because Jesus was preaching that he embodies everything that the scripture said. And they didn't dig that. They didn't think that that was right. And that was also taking away from their prestigious position of being the shepherds of the people. They liked that. Now, the Pharisees were the lay people. They were the people who were in the church, but they were very scholarly, very academic, very learned, but they connected with the people. So they went out and they tried to educate the people, uh, mentor the people. They get a real bad, uh, they seem to get a really bad rap in the New Testament. The Pharisees are called to account by Jesus all the time. But the reason for that is because their very job was to go out and connect with the people, and they weren't doing it right. That's why Jesus went to them. The people who didn't care about doing that, or who were completely atheistic or agnostic or uh, didn't care about other people, he didn't go to them and talk to them. He let their consciences work on them. But the people who who, uh, accepted that assignment, that's who Jesus went to and said, you're really messing up. Here's how you need to do it right. And you had some people like Nicodemus, Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea, come to him under the cloak of night very often and say, you know, we know that you're a person from God. No one could do the things that you've been doing. Tell us what this is all about. So anyway, Peter and John, because they were preaching the gospel, they were thrown into prison. And then they were dragged before the Sanhedrin. And so we have the fulfillment of one of Jesus' promises, which I told you earlier, is that you will be brought before magistrates and before leaders of the synagogues and the temples and before kings and princes. And I know that's going to be normally scary to you, but don't worry. You will be given what to say and how to say it. And that's exactly what happened. Peter became eloquent. And he became courageous about what he said because he told these people the same thing. You killed Jesus. And Jesus was the very Messiah you were expecting. Now, the Sadducees did not expect the Messiah, but the Pharisees did. And the Sanhedrin was divided between Sadducees and Pharisees. So, Peter did just that. His words are very eloquent, and he is courageous, and he's, he just is absolutely tremendous. 
And so what was his conclusion to his speech when they said, you will not speak about this Jesus anymore? And Peter says, I leave it up to you to judge. Should I obey God or you? So pretty powerful. So Peter then, they, they, they let him go, actually. Peter's prayer for power and purity and evangelism, he and the whole congregation prayed for that. And we go on and we hear more about the believers sharing with each other. Now, that idea of sharing, we are given a little antidote of Barnabas, uh, this very, very kind, generous man who we're going to see a lot more of. Uh, Barnabas actually means encourager, and he certainly was that. He was a wealthy man. Um, and another, another example that the Bible doesn't hate wealthy people. Uh, he just hates it when wealth controls a person. But if you use your wealth wisely and, and good for God, he's, ha- he's happy with that. So Barnabas comes and he sells a piece of land and he brings the money to the church uh, for the good of the people. That's actually the end of chapter 4, which is kind of unfortunate because then chapter 5 really is a part of that. There was, a, there was a couple called Ananias and Sapphira, and they were kind of jealous of all the um, respect that Barnabas was getting. And so they said, hey, let's go ahead and let's, let's do the same thing. But let's one-up Barnabas. Let's sell this land over here, give the money to the church, but say we have sold everything we own. And so that's what they did. Well, the Holy Spirit brings to Peter's knowledge, and, and they actually gave more than Barnabas did. So it was a lot of money. But Peter is told somehow by the Holy Spirit that, no, they actually held back a lot of money. And Peter says, how could you do this? How could you lie to the Holy Spirit? You know, God didn't care if, how much you give. Most people give a little bit. And they haven't given everything, but they say, I've, I've given this little bit. But they don't claim that they gave more than they did. But you know what you've done? You've lied to the Holy Spirit. How could you do that? So that was addressed to Ananias himself alone. And as soon as Peter stops speaking, Ananias falls down dead. And then Sapphira comes up. And Peter asks her, Sapphira, did you give us all the money of what you sold? And she said, oh, yes, we did. And he says the same thing. And she says, by the way, where's my husband? Well, you're going to go where your husband went. And right now, I can hear the footsteps of the people who are going to drag your body out of here. And she falls down dead. So everyone saw this, and it was like, message noted. <laughs> and so everyone knows you don't lie to the Holy Spirit. So the apostles heal many, and the church growth explodes. The Sadducees persecute the apostles tremendously. The apostles are jailed again. The angel of the Lord comes in and frees the apostles, ordering them, even though they've been flogged by now and they've been in jail, he orders them, continue preaching the gospel, which they did in the temple after they've been told not to. The apostles are dragged back before the Sanhedrin once again. And Peter's response to them when they say, we told you not to preach any more about this Jesus. And he says again, who am I supposed to obey, God or you? So there's a big argument in the Sanhedrin about what... What are we supposed to do with these people? Because everyone saw him heal that crippled man. And what are we going to do? We better flog him or something. So then a very wise rabbi 
who was Paul's rabbi, named Gamaliel, who's on the Sanhedrin. And by the way, everyone on the Sanhedrin, 71 people, everyone is a learned scholar. Everyone is is a scriptural expert, every single one of them. In fact, there's three rows of disciples of each of these people behind, seated behind them in this big hall. And then in front of each of the 71 is a clerk. They got this little servant, a clerk like the Supreme Court, that will go and run and do things and you know, bring back evidences, scriptural references, and so on for them. So it's a very busy, officious place. So each one of these Sanhedrin uh, participants is a very important person in their own right. So they're all arguing amongst each other. What are we going to do? So Gamaliel stands up and he says, whoa, wait a minute. Leave these men alone. And I'll tell you why. If this is of man, it's going to fizzle and fail on its own. And he gives a couple of other examples in the past of people who claimed to be Messiah and didn't last long. He said, if it's of man, it's going to fizzle out. It's going to fail. But if it's of God, and there's a few things that have happened that makes me think it might be, if it's of God, you'll find yourself opposing God if you persecute these men. And the other people say, oh, okay. Yeah, I guess the, the wise guy's right again. And so they follow Gamaliel's counsel. Uh, and there's a continuation of evangelism. Then we get into an interesting uh, anecdote in chapter 6 about government in the church. There are Grecian Jews and Hebraic Jews. Remember, all the Christians at this time are Jews. There's no Gentile Christians. Now, there may be some Gentiles who became converts to Judaism, possibly, but they're all Jews. And there are some that are Grecian, that's to say they were Hellenized, and some that were Hebraic, that is to say they were Palestinian and and they grew up near Jerusalem, and they went and made pilgrimage to Jerusalem at least once a year, maybe three times a year, like the most pious Jews would. Well, the Grecian widows were being discriminated against when the food was distributed. Because remember, there's no Social Security, there's no Medicaid, there's no food stamps back then. There's no social safety net. You know, extended families and communities have to take care of their own. And so when the food is distributed they're discriminated against and not giving as much as the Hebraic Jews are. So they said, what are we going to do? So Peter sets up an idea. Well, we're going to have seven deacons. Deacon, uh, deacon is just uh, in the Greek. Uh, diakonos just means a servant. And uh, so they, it's someone who serves tables, basically. And so seven are chosen and they're all Grecian Jews. So that the Grecian widows will get a fair shake. And uh, one of these is Stephen, matter of fact. So that is the first piece of government that we actually see happening uh, in the church. Then we get a picture of Stephen. Stephen is one of the deacons. He's a good man. He's very godly. He's a, a young man that is just on fire for Jesus. And he's preaching everywhere. And so he is brought before the Sanhedrin, and because he uh, is, uh, is preaching so tremendous, uh, he gives a speech that is just amazing, and he tells the people 
the leaders that they are putting way, way too much emphasis on the table, that Jesus should be the real focus of their adulation. Well, the temple had taken the place of priority in all the traditional Orthodox Jews' religious views. The temple was it, because that was supposed to be the residence of, of God. And so when he said, basically his speech is a recitation of Old Testament history, 98% of it. And then he doesn't even mention Jesus to the last sentence. Uh, but that's because he enraged the people so much when he talked about the temple being destroyed and how Jesus was superior to the temple that they stoned him. And he apparently was stoned before he could finish the speech because he was going to get into talking about Jesus himself more, apparently. And that's why a lot of people, including myself, uh, ignorantly said, you know, I don't, I don't really think the speech by Jesus, by Stephen is that great. I mean, it's all about the Old Testament, but it was basically uh, aborted before he could finish it. But he was giving the history of the Hebrew scriptures and how they testify to Jesus. And he is stoned. And as he's stoned, he says, I see the Son of Man standing there and an angel. And he's killed and he is, becomes the first martyr uh, in Jerusalem. Well, one of the people who's overseeing this execution, which was illegal because the Jews did not have the right to execute anybody. Uh, the Romans were the only ones that could do that. So this was an illegal act. But there was a young man who was an absolute zealous uh, supporter and defender of Judaism. His name was Saul of Tarsus. And he was absolutely convinced that his job was to eradicate the earth of these blasphemers who were dissing the temple and saying that this crucified, itinerant carpenter was actually the Messiah. How disgusting. And so, in all sincerity and in all godliness, he pursued the rounding up, the killing, and the imprisoning of of these uh, Christians, the Christian Jews. And we have to really understand that, that his motives were truly pure and sincere. That's important to understand. He was not a bad man. What he did was bad, of course, but he was completely, uh, he was full of pride. You can tell that when you read about him. But he was an incredibly gifted scholar. He basically had the Hebrew scriptures memorized. He knew them from the time he was a child. Uh, He was viewed by all of his peers as like always at the head of his class. And Gamaliel was his teacher. So that's the first glance that we get of Saul of Tarsus, who's going to become Paul. So then... Part of his assignment was to go after these Jews who had been dispersed throughout the region. And many of them had gone, because of the persecution following Stephen, many of them had gone to Damascus, which is up in Syria. 
And so he's on his way to round up these people and bring them back to Jerusalem to be tried, imprisoned, and some of them even killed. And so he's going there with a pretty good-sized guard escort. He's going there with temple guards who are going to be with him. And on the way, this is all in chapter 9 of Acts, this is the famous Damascus Road experience, and on the way, there is this tremendous concussion that knocks him off of his donkey, and this blinding light, and this voice that says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He says, who are you, Lord? Lord just means sir, master, some superior. Who are you, Lord? He says, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. And, I, and something that just proves that Jesus Christ relates very, very closely to the church. The persecution of the church means you are persecuting Jesus Christ. And so he then tells him, he says, get up and go to Damascus and go to a house on Straight Street that... Uh, I'll tell you how to get there. And then a man named Ananias is going to come get you. Well, then the Holy Spirit uh, communicates with Ananias, one of the Christians in Damascus who had come from Jerusalem. And he says, Saul of Tarsus has come and he's at this house. But I'll show you where it is. You need to go over there and nurse him back to health. And I says, oh, you got to be kidding me, Lord. This is a bad man. This is a man who has come to eradicate all of us. And the first word from uh, the Holy Spirit is, go! (laughs) But then it was kind of like what God said to Moses when he started giving his lame excuses. And he says, go, go to him. Because I have given him this assignment to spread the word to all the Gentiles. And I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. And so he goes off and Ananias does heal him back to health and gives him food and water. On the third day, and Saul is totally blind, uh, things like scales fall off his eyes and he's able to see. And he has now become an unbelievable believer. But, He's ignorant. He knew the Old Testament scriptures really well, but obviously he did not understand them properly. He knew them, but, but he misjudged or misunderstood the direction to which they were pointing. So we're told in Galatians that he immediately went down to Arabia. And Arabia is not like what we think about today. At that time, he goes down to a place called Horeb, which is also Mount Sinai. So he goes down to the place where the law was given in the Sinai Peninsula. And that's where he goes for three years. Three years. Remember, the apostles were educated for 40 days. Saul goes down there, and he's got to be taught a lot. A lot of his teaching is going to involve unteaching a lot of what he knows already. And so for three years, he is educated by the Lord, and he returns and goes back to Damascus, and he preaches the gospel there. He is now... All of the courage, all the energy, all the absolute vivacity that he has and his eloquence and his strength of speaking is all now being put to the service of the gospel. And that's what he does in Damascus. And he's fearless. Now keep in mind that there's a lot of Jews there in Damascus who don't like the Christians. 
And so they're out to kill Saul. No one can believe that Saul's doing this. Neither the Christians, who remember him as the persecutor, he was like, not like Hitler, uh, nor could the, the Jews, the Jewish uh, leaders, the Orthodox Jews, where Saul was their biggest champion. So anyway, the uh, uh, bounty is put on Saul's head to bring him in, dead or alive, and he is let out of Damascus in a basket and low, lowered down through the, the, the walls, outside the walls, by his Christian brethren. So then what we're told is that uh, it, after that, he goes back to Tarsus for 14 years, Saul does. He goes back to Tarsus for 14 years. And he preaches there, but he's also doing tent making. He's resorting back to, you know, his job was that of a tent maker. And uh, rabbis were very respected, but they weren't paid positions. And Saul was a rabbi. But it's not a paid position, so it, a, a rabbi had to have some kind of a, of a vocation. His was tent making. And basically tent making really is, is any leather goods. So it wasn't just tents. And uh, back then, of course, selling to the army, the Roman army, would have been a huge contract. And we think that Saul probably uh, ran a family business that did just that. So then we're told that with Saul off the scene, the church experiences a period of relative peace. And there's strengthening and there's encouragement by the Holy Spirit in the church, and it grows. Enormous growth is happening. Uh, Now we turn back to Peter. And Peter is uh, out of Jerusalem. He apparently uh, left also during the persecution. And he is going north uh, toward the Mediterranean Sea, the the, uh, part of the Mediterranean uh, Joppa, which is a little bit south of Caesarea Maritime, which was the location of the... uh, uh, the place of residence of the Roman procurator. So whenever Pilate wanted to get out of Jerusalem, he'd go to Caesarea Maritime. And so that was the power base for the Romans within that province of Judea. So on the way to in Lydda, uh, Peter heals a bedridden paralytic called Ananias, and many turn to the Lord. Then in Joppa, going over to Joppa, on the coast, he heals a woman named Tabitha. Now heals, but brings her back to life. She had died. And he brings her back to life. And many, many saw this and believed also. So the purpose of these, uh, these miracles is to have people believe the gospel that Peter is preaching to them. So Peter stays in Joppa for a long time with a man named Simon the Tanner. Now we get into the part of Acts where we see the walls being broken down and the gospel being spread to the Gentiles. Oh, gosh. (laughs) Um, And so what happens is that through a series of events, Peter is brought into contact with a Roman centurion who was an officer in charge of a hundred men. And Peter has a vision. Cornelius has a vision. Cornelius is is up in Caesarea. And the vision that Peter has basically says, don't call the anything that I have called clean, unclean. Meaning, don't consider the Gentiles unclean anymore. 
Cornelius has a vision saying, a man's going to come to you and preach to you. Listen to him. Go down, send some of your men down to Joppa and bring back a man named Peter. He's at the house of a tanner named Simon. So that happens. So Peter's brought back to Cornelius's the palatial house. And uh, as he enters the, uh, the house, uh, he goes in there and Peter uh, is... So he explains the gospel to uh, Cornelius, because um, Cornelius says, what, you know, why are we together? And he says, well, I'm supposed to tell the gospel to you. And so he does, and when that happens, the Holy Spirit comes out on everybody in the household, everyone who has heard that. And they all speak in tongues, and uh, they are all then baptized. Well, the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem, who are very strict, I mean, they're still Jews. Keep that in mind. They're just Christians. And they believe that, that, that Christ was the fulfillment of Hebrew scriptures. That doesn't mean you throw the New Old Testament out. Not at all. In fact, you embrace it even closer. So you are thoroughly, thoroughly Jewish. But you, are, you believe that Christ is your Savior. So they don't like it that Peter went into a Gentile's house. That was against the law to go into a Gentile house. So they bring him to Jerusalem to explain his actions. And so Peter does, and he says, the Holy Spirit came upon him, and I was told to baptize him, so I did. And so basically what the scripture says is that all the uh, Jewish leaders in Jerusalem said, huh, who'd have thought it? The Gentiles are saved too. Big surprise to them. Big surprise. So... um, those persecuted a connection with Stephen, um, they'd been scattered as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, and they told the gospel only to Jews. And the Jewish Christians from uh, Cyprus and, and Cyrene, they went to Antioch, Syrian Antioch, which is up at, in southern Turkey, and they preached the gospel to the Greeks there. Okay? And so many believed and turned to the Lord. And uh, then the Jewish Christian leaders in Jerusalem, they were alarmed at this, and so they sent an emissary, Barnabas. Barnabas, again, very respected person. He goes to Antioch to see what's going on. He's going to bring back a report. He's described as a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And he saw that the Greeks' conversions were for real. And a great number of people were brought to the Lord. So Barnabas goes to Tarsus, and he brings back Saul to Antioch. And they preach together. In Antioch for a year, they became very, very close friends, and and uh, they were just a dynamic duo of preaching. And the followers of Jesus were called Christians for the first time in Antioch. An interesting little anecdote. Then a prophet Abagus, Agabus, excuse me, uh, he prophesied that a severe famine was going to uh, go over the entire Roman Empire, which is in secular history that had happened under the reign of Claudius, who ruled from 41 to 54 AD, there was a horrible famine, which would be like a Great Depression, because uh, it was an agricultural world back then. So if you had a famine, the entire economic system was in peril. And uh, so the Christians raised, uh, in Antioch, they raised a fund, a, a rescue fund, for the very poor Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. So anyway, Herod Agrippa, he persecutes the Jerusalem church intensely, James, the brother of John, was murdered, and Peter was imprisoned. And Peter's miraculous prison, he is extremely heavily guarded because 
he was the Herod who witnessed this resurrection of Jesus. And the priests had come to the Romans and to uh, Herod, who was the, the king of the Jews, assigned by Rome to keep the peace there. And no one could believe that Jesus was resurrected. So they said, we'll just say that the disciples came and stole the body. Okay, so that'll be the story. Well, Herod said, we're going to make sure that doesn't happen with Peter. He's not going to be broken out of jail like Jesus was resurrected. So there were two guards, one on one side, one on the other, of Peter, chained to him while he slept, and a huge guard around the prison. What are the chances of Peter getting out? Zero. No chance. And yet an angel of the Lord came and somehow frees him. The guards remained asleep. Peter was let out. Now here's a lesson. The angel of the Lord takes Peter by the hand, leads him out of jail, goes through the gate of the city, and then goes one block and then disappears. What's the lesson here? The lesson is that, yes, God is going to do miracles in your life. And yes, God will get you out of jams. But he's then going to leave you up to your good judgment. So you better have been developing good judgment along the way. Because God's going to let you use it. And so Peter uh, was left up to his own wits to escape the, um, the gaze or the observation of anybody who might turn him back in. So the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem, uh, oh, excuse me, I'm sorry. Uh, so then Herod, he executes all those guards who were watching him. And, and uh, at least the guards around the, the Jesus tomb, they weren't, even, they weren't executed that we know of. But here these were executed. Uh, King Herod Agrippa uh, is then struck down and killed while he's giving a speech because he takes credit for uh, some great things that were done by God, maybe through him, but he gives no credit to God, and so uh, God strikes him down. And uh, the uh, Bible is pretty graphic in the way it describes it. It says he died of worms eating his body. Now we turn to Paul's mission trips, and I handed out some color uh, pages for you that are very, very useful, I think. And, uh, but I'm going I'm to go through them extremely quickly because we don't have time, obviously. I'm almost out of time right now. Um, Paul's first missionary trip, which was between 47 and 49 A.D. I know that dates are different on these, but uh, we don't know them exactly. But the, what I've got here is between 47 and 49 A.D. And uh, he traveled with Barnabas and John Mark. He goes to the provinces of Cyprus, Lycia, Phrygia, Laconia, Galatia, Pisidia, and Pamphylia. It's a total of 1,400 miles. It took over two years, and he establishes 12 congregations. Uh, after he did this, the Council of Jerusalem which is, uh, occurs, and that is Jewish Christians that call him in and say, look, I understand that a lot of these Greeks, you know, we, we got it that the Greeks are, you know, They'll be saved too, okay. But they need to live like Jews. I mean, okay, the Gentiles can be saved, but they've got to live like Jews. And Paul says, I, I, I don't think that that's really reasonable. And he, he gives his argument. And so there's a compromise. And so they say, okay, 
what we'll do is we'll give you a letter to take to all these, these uh, Christians, these Gentile Christians, and there's just a few things that they have to do. No sexual immorality, no eating the blood of animals, and a couple of other things. So that's fine with Paul. And so he goes back and he gives, he gives this letter to the, to the Gentiles. Paul writes his letter to the Galatians from Syria and Antioch after he gets back from that, that trip. Now, I've given you a chart, a table that shows when Paul wrote the different letters. Uh, it's this one right here. And this is very, very useful. It's given in chronological order about when Paul wrote which letters from where. This here is a timeline showing Paul's life, which is also very useful, and also has the timing of his missions and what he wrote when. He was a prolific writer. Now, of course, you've got to remember that when people back then who were particularly talkative wrote, what they actually did is that they, they spoke and you had scribes who took it down. And then Paul would take that written material back and he would edit it and get it just the way he wanted it. Uh, he was probably like a lot like uh, Augustine. Uh, Augustine was also a prolific writer. He was a, the Bishop of Hippo back in 400s AD. And he would walk around a room and he had four scribes, one in each corner. He talked so fast and had so much to say that he had four scribes to make sure nothing was, miss, nothing was missing. I wouldn't be surprised if Paul was like that. Um, Paul and Barnabas break up over John Mark, which is Barnabas's cousin, because John Mark left them in Pamphylia. He went with them in the beginning, but apparently it was too hard. The persecution was too much for him. And uh, Paul partners with Silas on the next missionary trip. Second missionary trip is between 49 and 51. It lasts about three years, and it's 2,800 miles. He spends a year and a half in Corinth during this time, and he writes First and Second Thessalonians, in 51 AD from Corinth. The third missionary journey, uh, Paul uh, is partnering with Timothy, with Luke and some others. It's 2,700 miles. It lasts over five years, three and a half of which are spent in Ephesus. And Paul writes 1 Corinthians in 56 AD from Ephesus. He writes 2 Corinthians in 56 AD from Macedonia. And he writes Romans in 57 AD from Corinth. Then, at the end of that, Paul's arrested and he's transferred to prison in Rome. And uh, it's pretty interesting to uh, learn about that. All along the way, he is preaching the gospel. And you've got Roman soldiers that become believers. And uh, he's taken to Caesarea, uh, which, is, as I said, is the official residence for the, um, the governors of the province of Judea, and he's taken there, and he ends up preaching to Felix and then Festus, the two governors, uh, while he's there for two years, while uh, Paul is there for two years. By the way, his name changes to Paul on the first missionary journey. They go through Cyprus, and the governor of Cyprus, the province of Cyprus, uh, is named Paulus. So some people believe, and he became a believer. Some people believe he was named after him. But in any case, his name was changed, just like Simon's name was changed to Peter by Jesus. It means you're a new man. So uh, this two-year trip 
to Rome and then a two-year house arrest in Rome uh, is what the last part of the book of Acts is all about. And he ends up preaching to a lot of the Romans and the guards uh, while he was in house arrest became believers. Many, as you can see from this chart right here, many of his books that we become so familiar with were written from Rome. That's when he was in house arrest is when that occurred. So uh, Paul becomes just a tremendous giant in uh, spreading the gospel. So that is uh, the book of Acts. Uh, Things happened after the book of Acts uh, stops. Uh, We know, which stops in about 62. We know that uh, in 62, Paul was was acquitted and he was... uh, he was sent out, uh, and he had a fourth missionary journey that went as far as Spain. And then he came back, he was arrested again, and he spent time in the dungeon, horrible, horrible dungeon, uh, called the uh, Marmitine Dungeon in Rome. And his friends looking for him couldn't even find him. It was considered a, a forgotten place. They just put you there and forgot about you. And uh, so they, uh, that's where he wrote his last letter, Second Timothy, was from there. And he was finally executed in 67 uh, A.D. at age 62 or 63. So that is uh, basically the book of Acts. Dear Heavenly Father and God, we thank you so very much for this time together. We thank you for the tremendous servants you showed to us, Peter and John and Paul and many others and the tremendous examples that they are, and that they were that way only because of the filling and indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and that if we will only let you, you can fill us with the Holy Spirit also, and for whatever assignment you give us, you will equip us, and you will uh, make us thoroughly fit for that assignment. Your Son, Jesus Christ, in name we pray these things. Amen.